James chapter 3, James chapter 3. So if you're just joining us in the fall, we did James chapter 1 and James chapter 2. We took a break for Christmas. A few things around the New Year season, we gathered around the Word of God. Uh, total, in total, Bayou City, we gave one another uh, over 1,200 Bibles, uh, which is cool in the last uh, two weeks. So uh, maybe you've got your brand new Bible. We're not, um, well, you won't see them up on the screens uh, today, um, just because we all have new Bibles and we should bring those Bibles to church and look at them uh, because uh, God has decided in his sovereignty to write down the word in his heart to us, and we want to take that seriously. So we're jumping back into the book of James. Just a little rewind on James since it's been a while. James is writing to Christians, maybe even Christians that he at one time pastored, that are now spread out. They are dispersed around the Roman world. And so this is a letter that he has sent to them, and he's talked about suffering, how even in our worst days, We can take joy in our suffering because the joy produces something of immeasurable worth, and that is spiritual maturity. Uh, We've talked about wisdom. We've talked about our resources. We've talked about uh, trials and the crown of life. We've talked about being doers of the word and not hearers only. We've talked about uh, favoritism and and diversity and uh, racial reconciliation Um, We've talked about the word of God. We've talked about faith and and our works and how those two things come together. And today we want to wake up to our words. Uh, We have a three-month-old daughter. Her name is Willa. And uh, Willa, for this first three months, has only been able to communicate two emotions, anger and sadness. That's just been her only way to communicate. Um, When she's angry, she screams. And when she's sad, she screams, and it's just been those two until a couple of weeks ago where she started to wake up to her words, uh, not talking yet. Uh, she's only three months old. We expect at four months she'll be able to talk fully and complete sentences. She is a genius. I didn't want to say that out loud, but I feel like it was God's will for me to say that out loud. But uh, she started cooing. You know, I thought about bringing a video, but uh, it's just so sweet uh, that I can't share it with you. That's how amazing it is. It's just, we got it on video. She's cooing. And so if you walk into our house right now, what you will find if she's awake is her laying down somewhere in somebody's arms or on one of those play mats. And then the other four of us huddled over her trying to get her to talk. And she will make a sound and we will emulate that sound. And then she'll make another sound and we will emulate that sound. She'll make another sound and we will, we will copy that. And, uh, and she just smiles, uh, just gets a huge smile on her face every time she communicates something and then we communicate it back to her. Because she's waking up to her words and it's making her very, very happy. And that's the message of James chapter 3 verses 1 through 8 today is just wake up to words. Pay attention. Take notice of what comes out of our mouth. He's not even going to give us a, and now here's what you should do. We're not going to leave today with a big to-do list of now we've read all this, now we've said all this, now here's what the scripture says we should do. It's not going to tell us anything to do other than to pay attention to what comes out of our mouth. Now, James, you remember, he's the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus. So he knows the power of a word. He has been an eyewitness to Jesus, you know, saying to a man with a withered hand, stretch out your hand. 
and, and sure enough, it happened. He, he was an eyewitness there in first century Israel, didn't hear it from three, four, five parties, but was right there, family member, when Jesus walked into the little girl's room because the father had come for her to say, come and heal my daughter. But on the way, somebody came and said, your daughter has actually passed away. And they get to the house, the people are mourning. And Jesus says, don't, don't, don't cry, she's just asleep. And they laugh at him. He goes into the room with the mom, the dad, Peter, James, and John, and, and says to the little girl, Talitha kum, which in Jesus' original language, those are the words that he used, means wake up, child. And she did. James was an eyewitness when Jesus was there, firsthand experience. He didn't hear it from mothers, cousins, grandmas, legend. But it happened. And when something happens in your family, whether you were in the room or not, you know about it. He knew the story of when the sinful woman came in. And and she was called the sinful woman because that's how everybody knew her. Probably a prostitute. Comes in to the middle of a dinner party that she wasn't invited to. Falls down on the ground. Starts weeping at Jesus' feet. Washing his feet with her tears and her hair. And Jesus says, you're forgiven. James knows the power of a word. He knew the story from his own mother of Jesus' last words. It is finished. So when he talks to us about words today, he talks as one who has seen and as one who knows the power of what comes out of our mouth. So a few things we see here. Chapter 3, verse 1. Not many should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. So if you're a teacher here today, you're going to be judged more strictly. So if you're like, man, I want the honor of opening up God's word. I want the prestige of being a leader. James would say, well, hold on just a second. Let me tell you everything that you need to know right now. And then you can make that decision. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a mature man who is also able to control his whole body. So you're able to control your whole body more easily than you are able to control your tongue. Now look what it says about our tongues, our mouths, our words. Now when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we also guide the whole animal. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, They are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too the tongue is a small part of the body. It boasts great things. So that's the first stop for us. The tongue, our words are small, but they make great boasts. And he uses two things. He uses horses and he uses the rudder of a ship. So both things. You, you've been on a horse before. Probably you've gone to Colorado and you've ridden one of those horses which kind of act you know, like they're on drugs because all they do is just follow the rear end of the horse in front of them. It doesn't really matter. But a little bit you can steer them or guide them. You know, and, and what makes that work? It's just a little piece in their mouth that when you pull on the rein, it makes them go that way. And, and when you pull on the other one, it, it makes it go that way. Just a small part you're able to control Uh, an animal that could easily kill you if it wanted to. A a massive ship. Doesn't matter the size of a ship. 
It, it could be a giant cruise boat. It could be just a small bay liner. But just the tiniest part decides which way the boat is going to go. I mean, think about the power of the simple word yes. Think about the word what the word yes has uh, accomplished for you. What doors it has opened for you. I've told you a story a few times about how Amanda and I met. We were doing a summer internship together. I was from Missouri. She was from down here in Houston. But we were going to do a summer internship together. And some friends were in charge of the internship. And they started sowing the seeds long before the semester ended where we were going to meet each other that summer. That we were going to end up partnered up both in that summer and in life. And I was totally resistant to it. She was totally resistant to it. They would call us pretty regularly and say, hey, Curtis, what are you doing? Excited about the summer. By the way, you're going to meet your wife this summer. And I'm like, whoa, 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 slow down. I'm looking for a little dual credit action. That's why I'm doing this. I'm looking for a little bit of training. I'm not signing up, you know, to, to meet my future wife. And they're like, whatever, you know, God has told me this is what it is. I was like, I don't care if God has told you. He's going to untell you because I am not that interested. And they were doing the same thing to Amanda, and she was just as hesitant as, as I was. So the, the day before we're supposed to meet, a friend calls and says, uh, hey, well, what if we, you know, there's just a few interns of us, uh, uh, me and my girlfriend, and then you and Amanda, so it's going to be the four of us. Uh, what if we go to a water park tomorrow just to kick things off, just to get to know one another, just to, it'd be awesome, it'd be great, it's a great way to start the summer, do something fun, and and I'm like, I, I see what you're doing here. I see what you're doing. You got you and your girlfriend. That's intern couple number one. And you're trying to make intern couple number two over here. And I'm not having any of it. He's like, come on, man. It's, it's white water. It'd be awesome. It'd be fun. We'll tube down. It'd be so great. And uh, I said, well, okay, here, here's what I'll do. Uh, I will go, but you got to bring a fifth person. That way it's not weird. It's not you and your girl. And then me and this other girl. A lot of weird, awkward pressure. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're in. Yes. I'll pick you up 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Sure enough, they're in my driveway. 10 o'clock, I come out. I just dyed my hair red, which is hard for you to imagine. You're like, well, I don't know. Maybe you had red hair back in the day. I didn't. Jet black is what I had. A lot of it, too. A lot of it. But on a whim, I had gotten a box from Walmart. So it just looked like a moron. I got my hat, hat, hat way pulled down over my eyes because I'm cool like that. I walk out, kind of peek into the 1987 S10 Blazer that my friend was driving at that time. One, two, three people in the car. And I got in, and uh, a week later, we were in love. The power of a, a yes. I mean, think about the yes that you said somewhere along the line. Maybe it was, will you go on a date with me? And, and you said yes. Maybe it was, are you willing to take this job? And, and you said yes. Maybe it was, it, should we consider moving to Houston? Just the, the power of yes. Are you ready to have kids, the power of a yes. It's just such a small word. Just three simple letters. But it shaped the whole course of your life. And that's what James is saying. The tongue is small. Just like a rudder is small. Just like the bit 
in a horse's mouth is small, but it's a door opener. It makes great boasts. It has tremendous influence. Then he goes on, verse 6. And the tongue is a fire. So the tongue is a fire. We're waking up to our words today, and our tongue is a a fire. And he uses there before, he says, consider in verse 5, how large a forest, a forest a small fire ignites. Consider how large a forest a small fire ignites. We have some fire experts in the room with us today because we have some kids and we have some men. Right? Anytime you see a fire, just two groups of people gathered around, kids and men, because men are kids that just got bigger and not more mature. Right? There's the man, you know, the full-grown man taking a paper plate, wadding it up, and just throwing it in, right? He's digging through the, his wife's purse to try to find stuff to burn. I don't know what it is. It just brings out the kid in us, doesn't it? Kids and, and men, we're just attracted to fire. And so kids and men in here know today that in order for a good fire to happen, it's not about throwing gasoline on a bunch of logs, It's not about going to get the kerosene and dumping it all on there. It's not about getting the hairspray and doing a blowtorch thing. You know, it it doesn't work. You got to start a small fire. And once the small fire is happening, then you can put the logs on. Then the logs are lit up. Because what happens when you just put the gasoline on a bunch of logs is the gasoline burns up immediately. The kerosene burns up immediately. It's a big fire for a second, but then... It's a small fire that really makes it burn. And, and James is saying, your, your words are small. They're just small things. But they're on fire. They're on fire. I mean, have you ever thought about your words being fire, but you don't know how flammable the person is that you're talking to? You don't know whether or not that random careless word that came out of your mouth is landing on a piece of iron. They're having a great day. They're confident. Life is great for them right now and it's just gonna bounce off them. But that friend, that colleague, that person checking you out at the HEB, you don't know that maybe their life is just tender right now. And that anger is going to come out of you and that hurtful thing, that frustration is going to come out at you and it's going to set them on fire. They're going to take it deep in their soul and they will always remember that word that you said. They will always remember what you call them because our words are a fire. They're small. Then he goes on. And the tongue is a fire, verse six. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, a world of unrighteousness. Your tongue, your words are an ecosystem of evil. It reminds me of what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Luke chapter 11. You know, Jesus had um, an antithetical relationship with them. They were, uh, he was antagonistic towards them. We don't think of Jesus being like that, but he loved to, he loved to turn their own trap on themselves. He, he loved to, they, they loved to try to catch him, but he would catch them. Uh, it wasn't just an attempt. And so he has this antagonistic relationship with these religious leaders. And he says, you know what your problem is? Your problem is uh, that you clean the outside of your cups, but on the inside of your cup is just nothing but greed and, and, and evil and wickedness. 
Because they were upset that he didn't wash his hands in the proper religious way before he sat down at the table. And he's like, listen, all you do is just clean the outside. But the inside is evil. He also said in another place, in uh, Luke chapter 6, he says, out of the abundance of the heart or the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is why our tongues and our words are an ecosystem of evil, an ev- a world of unrighteousness, because inside of us is some pretty wicked stuff. Have you ever had something come out of your mouth and you're like, where did that come from? Where did that cuss word come from? Where did that hurtful comment come from? Where did that ability to just slice them in half in a moment, where did that come from? Came from the overflow, the abundance of your heart. It came from inside of you. It wasn't just a, oops, my bad. Your words will eventually give you away. See, we come in here today, I mean, we're just, you could fool me, and I could fool you. Oh, man, everything is great. Man, my life is great. My marriage is great. I'm great, man. God, I've never been closer to God. I'm just, just loving the word of God, just reading it so much. Man, I fast and pray all the time. All we have to do is just spend a little time with you. And all you have to do is spend a little time with me and eventually your words will either say yes to that or no to that. Because out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. So if there is a world of unrighteousness inside of you, eventually we're all going to get to see the telescope image of that universe through your words. Verse 6. The tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the whole body. So our tongue, our word, it pollutes the whole body. It's placed among the rest of our body parts, but what the tongue does is undermine those parts. Uh, so we got some football fans in here today. So we've got a little cheer for the uh, AFC and NFC championship game. Uh, later on, and you're probably like, come on, dude, get this over with. I got, I got someplace I got to be. Um, you, you know, the, before they get drafted, they go to the NFL Combine. Right? So all the college players that want to be drafted into the NFL, they're going to go to, I think it's in Indianapolis, and they put them through a bunch of tests. They test how fast they are. They test how strong they are. They test how high they can jump, how long they can jump. They do all those measurements, and some of the guys just measure off the charts, and they get drafted. They get millions of dollars just based on how they pass these tests. They didn't even have to be a good college player. They didn't have to be from a famous program. Some of them are from junior colleges. They just had to get in here and show what they're able to do. But the last thing that they do at the NFL Combine is they sit down to do an interview with the owners and the GMs that are going to potentially draft them, and they just ask them a bunch of questions. And you would be surprised how many world-class athletes lose millions of dollars because of their words. They could jump higher and run faster than anybody else there. But in that interview, through their words, everything else was undermined. You remember that uh, beauty pageant contestant a few years ago, the Iraq and stuff girl? You remember her? Off the charts, 
beautiful in every measurable metric that our society has. Talented, all of that. But totally undermined by what? Words. Because our mouths, our words, our tongue, it's placed along the rest of our body, but our mouths can undo all of the rest of our greatness. Men, think about your marriage right now or the relationship that you're in. Think about your hands. Your hands are there to serve. You're, you're rubbing your wife's feet. You're taking out the trash. Your hands are there to serve. Your feet are there to serve. You stand on them all day long as you're working to provide your portion of the income. You're mowing the yard with those legs in your high, high shorts to impress your wife. <laughs> past the knees, man. That's where we got to be. We got to be past the knees. Your legs serving your family. Your mind serving your family. Solving problems at work that generate that income. Trying to put together your kids' Christmas toys. you got to have a PhD to be able to undo those directions and put them back together. Your mind thinking of creative ways to love your, love your family, your heart. Your heart's engaged. You really do love your wife. You really are committed to her. But your mouth, in a moment, can ruin all of that. I mean, you realize it doesn't matter how many commas are in your paycheck. One word could undo all of that goodwill. It doesn't matter how many games you coach or go to. One phrase will be all that that little girl remembers. You can go to the games. You can wear the gear. You can have your face painted, you can be the loudest one. And all your son might remember is that grumpy word that came out of you when you got into the car because you weren't paying attention and the ball rolled between your legs. Our mouths, our words placed among the rest of our bodies, all that goodwill, all that hard work in honor, uh, in the name of honoring our family, honoring our spouse, and, and being a good friend, being a good employee, all that totally undermined in a second because of the power of our words. One of the other ways to translate the word pollute is stain. That our tongues are placed among our body and instead of pollutes, it, it stains, which I think is so great because there are some stains that you can't get out. You can't unsay your words. You can't rewind enough to get them to not remember it. You can't back your way out of your words because they pollute. They pollute. Growing up in my hometown, the city dump was outside the city and we actually knew some people who kind of lived close to there. And I remember going to their house and, and when you would first get to your house and you'd get out of the car, you'd be like, oh my gosh, it smells so terrible here. And just thinking to myself, why would anybody live here? Why would anybody live within a mile of this place? Because when the wind changes, that's all that you can smell. But we would go in and we would play and then we'd you know, go outside and play. And when we were leaving, I could never smell it. Why? Because you just get used to it. And that's what some of us have done with the pollution that comes from our tongues and our words, is we've just gotten used to it. How sad, moms and dads, that our kids would just get used to the pollution that comes out of our mouth. How sad that we would be people that, when we leave, 
our kids or our wife, she has to do damage control and be like, oh, don't, don't worry about him. That's just the way he is. Just gotten used to the smell. Don't pay any attention to that guy. That's just, that's just who he is. But we're waking up to our words today. We're realizing that they're small, but they're influential. Verse 6, it pollutes the whole body and sets the course of life on fire. It's a picture of a forest fire all around. You know, some of us are just a walking forest fire because of our, our words, just with a blowtorch. Here he comes. Lay down the, lay down the chemical thing. Blockade. Let's push it this way. Forest fire, how do we get control of it? We can't put it out, but maybe we can aim it in a different direction. Don't bother your dad right now. Don't bother your mom right now. Redirect, redirect. Here he comes, home from work. Had a bad game. Here he is. Brought home a bad report card. Mom, on the warpath. Boss, grumpy. Favorite team lost today. Everybody duck. Just a walking blowtorch. How horrified would you be one day to find out that people had to gear up before you came around because they didn't know what you were going to say? How terrifying that we are the kind of people before they get out for the lunch meeting of their car, they have to give themselves a pep talk. Because of all the damage that we're going to do to them across the table. Little indirect things like, uh, man, you look like you've lost a lot of weight. I.E., used to be fat. Are you fixing your hair different? It looks amazing. I.E., you're struggling back then. Glad to see that you finally fill in the blank. See, the problem with our words is we're usually the last one to hear them. But today we're waking up to them. Just waking up that what we say, they're little phrases. They're little letters shoved together, but they're so powerful. And it goes on to verse 6. It pollutes the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. So, which is just like, it just keeps getting worse from James, doesn't it? It's like, they're small, but uh, powerful. And then, oh, world of unrighteousness and ecosystem of evil. And, oh, by the way, everything that comes out of your mouth is set on fire by hell. And how scary would it be that Satan, who's looking to partner with people. You know this about Satan, right? Satan doesn't just do work on his own. He's always looking for a partner. Satan doesn't come just alone, take physical form and do his work. He actually uses people. And so how horrifying would it be that Satan would use the people of God to vocalize his agenda of evil and harm. And more than just vocalize it, to accomplish it. You know, Satan has a plan and strategy, a method for harming your children. He wants to crush them. God wants to build them up. He wants to crush them. 
your spouse, God wants to speak life into them, wants to equip them, and, and, and he wants to destroy your wife and your husband. How awful would it be if Satan found a willing partner in your tongue and my tongue to accomplish his strategy for killing and destroying and stealing? Set on fire by hell. And then in verse 7, For every creature, animal or bird, reptile or fish, is tamed and has been tamed by man. So what it's saying is everything can be tamed. But no man, verse 8, can tame the tongue. Everything has been tamed. That's why when you go to the, the zoo, you know, the lion has not eaten the lion keeper. That, that's why when you, you know, go to the, you know, circus, you feel relatively safe even though there's an elephant, which is a bazillion pounds, about 20 feet from you. And then they invite your little kids to come and sit on top of it. And you're like, oh, I get to pay for that opportunity to set my child on this wild animal? That would be fantastic, right? Uh, why? Because they're tamed. Everybody has tamed everything. This past summer, Amanda and I were in Atlanta, and we went to the Atlanta, the Georgia Aquarium, and they have uh, whale uh, sharks there. Whale sharks are you know, almost as big as this room. That's how big they are. They're a shark, but they look like a whale because that's how big they are. So somebody got creative, and let's just call that a whale shark. And so they have whale sharks in there, and, and, uh, and we got a behind-the-scenes tour because we knew somebody who knew somebody, and, and we got connections, and we can see giant whales and whatever. And so uh, we're there, and, and uh, we're watching them. It's time for them to feed. And so this this, uh, this Fish tank is it's like four football fields together in a big square. It's just humongous. And so the, the keepers, they get in these little rafts. And there were like three keepers. And they have a rope that goes down to the middle. And on, they have a little pole. And there's, at the end of the pole, there's a bucket. And the bucket is a certain color. There's a red, there's a green, and there's a yellow. And the whale sharks know which bucket color is theirs. They also know that when they see the boats going in the right direction, that it's time to eat. And they train these wild animals to come up and just open up their mouth so that the keeper can just flip the bucket into their mouth. And then it refills the bucket and they go a little bit further and they see that color in the water. And here comes the whale shark to eat uh, the, the fish in that bucket. And you're, you're looking at this and you're thinking, these are massive animals that are bigger than boats. And they figured out a, not only how to feed them without dying, which I think is a miraculous accomplishment. Number two, they taught these whale sharks colors. I barely know my colors. And they taught these whale sharks colors and then how to open up their mouth without eating the bucket. Just to open up their mouth. And you've seen this. You've been. You've got your own behind-the-scenes tour. You've seen that every animal on earth can eventually be subdued. But James is saying, not the tongue. Not our words. You can tame everything before you and I would be able to tame it. Thankfully, Galatians tells us we don't have to tame Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh 
with its passions and desires. See, the idea is, is we're not trying to tame our tongue, we're trying to crucify our tongue. And more than just our tongue, our desires, because remember the tongue is just the mouthpiece for whatever's overflowing out of your heart. So we're not trying to just restrain our words today. We're trying to crucify our flesh with Jesus. Jesus, you were crucified, you died, and I die with you. All of my flesh, all of my evil, all of my wicked passion, my ecosystem of evil, I want that to die with you so that when you have been raised, I've also been raised because I used to be an old man, but now I'm a new man. I used to be an old creature, but now I'm a new creation in Jesus. And so I'm not just trying to restrain evil in my mouth. Trying to crucify all of that wickedness along with Jesus on the cross. And then verse 8 of James, he says, a restless evil. Your words are relentless today. Which is why none of us are leaving with a tremendous amount of hope of, hey, because I've heard that sermon, I'm never going to struggle with this again. Yeah, no, you will. And the next time we talk about it, was just heads up, it's going to be next week. We're going to be in here because he's not done talking about our mouths. We're just doing eight verses, but he did 12 verses about the mouth. We'll be like, damn, man. Yeah, that's me. Because it's relentless. It's relentless. You can think you have it under control. You think you have it pressed down. And then out it comes. It's relentless. And then look how he finishes. It is a relentless evil full of deadly poison which is a picture of a snake. You guys remember, I think it was a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, that uh, guy on Discovery Channel or whatever, he made it his goal to get eaten by an anaconda and put it on video. So he flew his whole team down to South America and they were searching for this super huge snake of legend. Well, of course they didn't find that, but uh, they found a pretty big snake and, and they're like, okay, we think that this is a good one. You know, all this happened within the last five minutes of the two hour episode, of course. And, and so they find the snake and he starts putting on all this equipment. They built special equipment so that this guy could get crushed by the snake without actually getting crushed. So then the snake would open up its mouth, unhinge its jaws and start eating him. And he had this weird cone shaped helmet on so that he could actually get eaten by the snake. And they got GoPro cameras all on it so that we can actually video. And you're like, who would watch that? I watched that entire thing. And sure enough, he put on all his equipment and it looked like the Hurt Locker, he's coming out in his bomb stuff. And he essentially just lays down on the snake. And at first the snake's not like, I don't want to eat you. You look like a giant weird thing. But he starts agitating the snake. So eventually the snake is like, I don't have any choice. And wraps him up, starts to squeeze him. And he lays there like he's motionless. And they've got him all hooked up to all the, you know, his heart rate and his stress and all that. They're monitoring all of that. And, um, and, uh, and so the snake gets him where it thinks that it's got him good. And he's feeling it. He's feeling it. And his heart rate goes up. And they're like, should we stop it? Should we not stop it? And he's like, don't stop it. And sure enough, the snake starts to unhinge his jaws and starts to try to swallow him. But it just gets a little bit of his head and he starts freaking out. His vital signs start freaking out because he's getting crushed and he's getting eaten by a snake, which just is not that wise. You know, I think if you're like, what am I going to do with my week? I'm going to try to get eaten by a wild animal. Just not that 
not a good idea. And so they take him. They stop it. And the snake slithers off and he goes to the hospital. So this guy, a professional, not wise, but incredibly smart, with a team of people monitoring, got guides, professionals, all of them. He's got state-of-the-art equipment and, and still couldn't overcome, exert his will against the snake. Why? Because we know snakes are dangerous, dangerous animals. And James is saying, hey, your words, more deadly. Anaconda can do less damage than the sentences that you will say at lunch today. They what they inject deadly poison. Venom. I mean, think about all that we inject in people through our words. We inject our own issues. We inject our own worry. We inject our own wounds. We inject our own fear. Parents, you've seen that in your kids already? Your kids are maybe just toddlers. Maybe they're teenagers. Maybe they're grown. And when you look at them, what do you see? You see that they struggle with the same things that you struggle with. And you're like, man, how did that happen? I didn't want that to happen. I ended up just like my dad. But I didn't want them to end up just like me. I wanted to do something different. But we didn't control our mouths. We didn't control our words. Through our words, we injected that fear. Through our words, we injected that poison. Through, through those words, we injected our racism. That's how racism keeps getting translated into each generation. It's through our words. It's through little comments like, uh, yeah, I was talking to this guy in parentheses, he was Latino. Parentheses, he was black. Listen, we don't need the description of somebody's ethnicity just when you're telling a story. I didn't, you know, come home from buying shoes and be like, hey, Amanda, my salesman, you know, I had this great conversation. Oh, by the way, he was white. And if you wouldn't do it with a white person, you don't do it with a Latino person or with an Asian person or with an African-American person. That's just injecting poison. But we're asleep to our words. So we just keep doing it. Hey, listen, some of you have learned that you can't compliment somebody without, uh, you know, saying something mean about them first. It's just injecting poison and then trying to give them a Band-Aid. Hey, great, great performance this fiscal quarter. A lot better than last quarter. Just poison. Here's a band-aid, and we gotta wake up to it. We gotta wake up to it. This is why he starts by saying, Not many of us should presume to be teachers, because if you're a teacher, God has said, I'm gonna put you on a platform and I'm going to use your words. And if words are the deadliest of wild animals and the most influential of weapons, how much more dangerous is it than to have a moment where everybody would listen to your dangerous, dangerous things. We're just waking up to them today. Oh yeah, my words matter. My words matter. I've told you my story many times, but when I was about uh, 16 years old, I, I'd grown up in church, but uh, 
church was not my thing at 16. I had to go because my parents uh, lived by the rule, if I'm financing your life, you're going to do whatever I want. And, uh, and so, uh, so I went to church, just didn't have any option. I went to a bunch of church, by the way. Some of you teenagers, you're like, gosh, my parents made me go to church on Sunday morning. Listen, my parents made me go to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. And if they offered something on Tuesday, then I was going to be there too. And I didn't want to be there. I'd, I'd sit in the farthest back row as I possibly could, and I'd wear a baseball cap, and I'd pull that thing way down over my eyes because that's what I do when I'm not interested in what is happening. I wasn't interested in meeting Amanda, of course, until I saw her, and then I pulled that baseball hat way up. And so I wasn't interested in church, so I sit in the far reaches, and uh, one Friday night, there was a big concert, Christian concert happening in my hometown and at the, the big arena, and my, uh, this was before the days of internet, and it was a free event, and, uh, and so uh, my mom wanted my sister to be able to go, and, and for some reason they weren't going to make me go, but uh, my sister wanted to go, so she waited all day long. She got up there at sunrise with her lawn chair so that my sister could get front row seats. This was her favorite band, her favorite everything. And so uh, about halfway through the day, my mom gets somebody to save her place in line and walks to a payphone. It was those days. And, uh, and calls and says, uh, I answer the home phone. And she's like, hey, what are you doing tonight? I just turned 16. I had a car and I had some freedom. And I was like, I don't know. I've been trying to set some stuff up, but you know, nope, everybody's busy. And she's like, why don't you come to this thing tonight? And I was like, I'm not coming to the thing. I appreciate the invitation. In my mind, I'm like, I'm 16. I got a brand new car. I don't like going to regular church. I'm not going to extra church. You know what I mean? Like, it's not what I want to do. But I said, no, I don't think so. I'm not really interested. And she's like, well, I I think you should come. And that was all she said. I think you should come. And so I started getting on the phone with everybody. I was calling people I'm not even friends with. Hey, do you want to hang out? What are you doing? Nobody's home. This is before the days of text message. Can't get a hold of anybody. It's about five o'clock. This event's starting at six. I don't have anything to do. And for some reason, I'm like, fine, I'll go. And so I drove to the arena, parked my car, got the butt in line, of course, because my mom had been there all day. And then it was like, they'd open the doors and mad rush. So everybody that we were there with, it was like, I lost them. I don't know where my mom ended up sitting. I don't know where my sister ended up sitting. I literally ended up sitting by myself around total strangers. And this Christian concert happened, and it was great. It was the newsboys there on the radio, some, and it was like, okay, this is cool. I wasn't like listening to you know Jesus music at the time, and uh, more gangster rap was my thing, and clearly, you know. And uh, <laughs> but they were good, they were entertaining, and, and then this guy got up to preach and talk, and the whole point of his message was, you should make right choices instead of wrong choices. That was it. And at the end, he asked for commitments of all kinds. And I'm sure there were people that were saved there that night that became Christians, decided to follow Jesus and, and all kinds of stuff. But uh, I'm thinking about, okay, what's my commitment? He's just talking about making right choices instead of making wrong choices. I was thinking about my life. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm really good at making fun of people. I'm just good at it. It's like my spiritual gift. And uh, love to make fun of my friends, crack jokes, all that. And most of the time it was in a spirit of, you know, fun and whatever. But I knew that I crossed the line a lot, especially with one friend. And so my big commitment was this week, I'm going to try not to do that. Just instead of making fun of my friends, I'm going to not make fun of my friends. This doesn't sound like a huge spiritual commitment, you know. Man, what did God do in your life? Oh, I'm just going to try not to make fun of people. Like this isn't not missionary or be a pastor, just not going to make fun of people. And so I did. Monday came around. And this was on my mind. Okay, I'm not, not going to make fun of people. 
and I did it. I made it, survived Monday. Tuesday was harder, but I did it. Wednesday, Thursday. Somewhere in the back half of the week, I'm sitting at home in my room, waiting for dinner. My mom's cooking dinner. And I think, where's my Bible? Like, I didn't even know where it was. And, and I looked and I found it. It was black and uh, my grandparents had bought me it, uh, a long time ago. It was King James Version. And I just grab it and in my bedroom, I just flip and find some random place and I start reading it. I had not read it in years. Years, probably. And I remember that Sunday, we're getting ready to go to church and I was a different person. I don't know what happened. I don't know. I wanted to go and I wanted to come back that night. And at night church was a little bit different. Uh, They handed out this folder and uh, it was like all the teenagers. And the youth pastor said something, write down something that happened to you this week. Just that simple. And I remember writing down, I will never be the same. I'll never be the same. And it all started with, I'm going to do my best to control my words. So James is just saying, wake up today. Just wake up to your words. They're a big deal. And what I'm saying to you as your pastor, something that simple might totally change the trajectory of your thank you for your word and its power. Thank you for your word and its influence over our lives. And we respond to it now by doing all that we know to do.